The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 27th, 2016 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. The Lord Jeffs are no longer. The mascot of Amherst College has been dropped. And I say that's good based on my principle, which I've backed many times on this show. Don't be horrible. You have a mascot, a mascot, an encephalitic headed figure prancing about the sidelines, and he brings less than joy if he visits consternation upon the crowd and community of Amherst College, then that mascot needs to be dropped. As the good book says, if a mascot doth offend, pluck that mascot out in a broad pantomime motion and stomp on him. Use the old mascot to wipe the bottom of your new mascot's comically round and befeathered bottom. So don't be horrible. Clearly applies to mascots. President of Amherst College said, if mascots don't bring people together, then mascots aren't doing their job. When you look at why Lord Jeff was the mascot, there there are just so many things going against him. One, he... The actual mascot, the physical embodiment, was an old 18th century lord on the sidelines with his ruffled shirt. Not that intimidating. Two, I just don't think your teams, they're down by two. There's a minute left. They look to the sidelines. (laughs) They draw sustenance and pride from the 18th century lord. I don't think that was happening. Now, you might say, of course, if we're talking about Amherst College and the Lord Jeffs, they play in the New England Small College Athletic Conference. They might be playing Williams College, who are the Eifs, named for Ephraim Williams, the Eifs. Not to be confused with the Fs, which are the grade that the Eifs get as a mascot. But since there's no such thing as an Eif, and since Williams wasn't so stupid as to have a Fryum Williams prancing about the sidelines, they actually used a purple cow as their guy-in-a-suit type mascot. Also in that conference is Tufts, and the Tufts mascot is the Jumbos, named after the elephant Jumbo, who died on the campus of Tufts. That's a great association. But it is better than Geoffrey Amherst, the 18th century British general known for suggesting a plan to deliver smallpox-infected blankets to Native Americans. Now, they said, you know, Amherst College isn't even named for Geoffrey Amherst. It's named for the town of Amherst. Yes, but your town is named for the man. This is like saying, Penn State, we're not named for Penn, we're named for the state. Yes, but if the state is named for Penn, it's the transitive property. You could study that at Amherst College. But anyway, Amherst is done. They change their mascot and they usher in the new era where the Amherst College mascot will forever be known as the Mel Gibsons. Oh, shit. On the show today, I spiel about endorsements and if they're important... They're not that important. But first, I'm going to endorse the presidency of Barack Obama, who's done a better job than you may think in areas that you might not even know about. (laughs) 
Barack Obama has less than a year left in his presidency. And by this point, I think we all pretty much know the big lists of accomplishments. Obamacare certainly lowered the number of people, the percent of people without insurance. Economically, unemployment is at 5%. It was never even that low under the much vaunted Reagan administration. Of course, on the other side, internationally, the spread of ISIS. And we know his characteristics. We know that he's a gifted communicator. We know that he's no drama Obama. But guess what? A lot of that stuff I just listed is only stuff we think we know. And this was brought to my attention in an article in Politico magazine by Michael Grunwald, who is a senior writer for Politico. And he talked about the nation he built, a Politico review of Barack Obama's domestic policy legacy and the changes he made while nobody was paying attention. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the changes he made while no one was paying attention. We paid attention, or at least the Republicans tried to make it that a lot of his policies were a government takeover of you name what. But then you point out there really was something akin to a government takeover of a major area. Now, listeners, do you know what what Grunwald's going to say next? Go ahead. What was it? (laughs) Well, it's funny. Of course, we're talking about Obamacare, right? Of course, right? Which, you know, Republicans have trashed as as a government takeover. And in fact, although as you mentioned, it extended health care to so far about 20 million people, and it has reduced the health care cost growth to the lowest level in, in uh, 50 years. It actually wasn't a government takeover of health care, but tucked into Obamacare, there was a government takeover of the trillion-dollar student loan program, um, which uh, has completely transformed it. It's gotten rid of these you know, big private lenders who were raking in these really huge billion-dollar fees for taking virtually no risk. And they've used the savings, about $60 billion overall, to help expand low-income tuition grants for students, the called Pell Grants. Through the course of the administration, they've also reduced student borrowing so that you no longer have to pay more than 10% of your discretionary income and your monthly payments, and that you can get forgiveness after 20 years. So transforming higher education is just one of those sort of quiet revolutions I wrote about. There have also been gigantic changes in energy, in education, as you mentioned, with the economy, as well as the sort of familiar stuff about reviving the auto industry or allowing gays to serve openly in the military really has been a transformative presidency, whether you like the change or not. Is there an an analogy about how transformational Obama administration policies have been in this one somewhat small area? Well, I think it's certainly the the largest change in higher education policy and certainly in decades, probably since the Great Society. And it only made page A16 of the New York Times because <laughs> uh, there was such, you know, obviously it was not the biggest part of Obamacare. Okay, I want to talk about one other thing that people may not have noticed, energy policy. So they may have heard the opposition saying the word Solyndra, and that did not work. That was a failure, that one company. But overall, give us a sense of what he did to transform energy. Well, I talked about that. I wrote a book about the stimulus bill, which was sort of, you know, considered a joke. It was porculous a year after it passed. I think only fewer Americans uh, believed that it had created any jobs than believed Elvis was alive. And of course, then you had Solyndra. So that's what people know about the $90 billion in the in the stimulus that went towards clean energy. But in fact, the loan program that financed Solyndra is on track to make money. <laughs> it's been over the rest of the portfolio 
portfolio is doing really well. It's uh, financed, among other things, nine of the largest solar arrays in the world. And overall, in the Obama era, you've had solar power has expanded about 25-fold. Wind power has tripled. Carbon emissions are dropping, even though the economy is growing. So these are really unprecedented changes. I wrote a lot about the changes in coal. Everybody knows about the carbon regulations, the clean power plan that's gotten so much attention. But there have been regulations on mercury, soot, smog, coal ash, coal effluent, just a real kind of drip, drip, drip of, uh, of rules that really have constituted a war on coal, whether you like it on, or not. And that's the reason that uh, you've seen just about a third of the, the nation's coal fleet shut down during the Obama era. But for the personal popularity of Obama, the Democratic Party, and the fact that he was able to win election twice, the Democratic Party would be in shambles. And yet their policy, they were the ones, not all of them, but they were the ones who pushed through stimulus instead of austerity. That's the right answer. So what is the point of debates or politics if no one even knows what the right answer? We're debating who has the better wrong answer. It's a little dispiriting, I think. Well, I think, uh, you know, to some some extent, you'd think the proof would be in the pudding, right? Mm -hmm. That was certainly the o Obama, you know, the mantra inside the White House, especially in those early days is like, like, if we keep our heads down, if we do the right thing, don't worry about the politics, take care of the policy, and ultimately people are going to like the results. And certainly in 2012, he was able to say, are you better off than you were four years ago? Well, yeah. Things sucked four years ago. Mm -hmm. And in eight years, whoever, you know, in 2016, whoever the Democratic nominee is, is going to be able to say you're better off than you were eight years ago. Um, that said, you know, there's been a lot of change. And to, at some level, people don't like it all that much. An example I love to give is uh, of the way they've emphasized sort of policy over politics is was buried in the stimulus was his his middle-class tax cuts, which he had campaigned on. It was called Making Work Pay, and it went to 95% of the country. And there was a big argument inside the White House. So are we going to just send everybody a big fat check that says, here's your tax cut from Barack H. Obama? Or are we going to just dribble it out a few dollars a month by reducing withholding in your weekly paycheck? Because behavioral economists suggest that if you get a big windfall, you're more likely to save it rather than spend it. And of course, the whole point of stimulus was to get people to spend their money. So they did the good wonky policy thing, and they, uh, they just dribbled out the, the money so that nobody noticed it. And nobody noticed it. Yep. It was horrible politics. You know, a, a year later, uh, only 10% of the country realized that President Obama had, had cut their taxes, right? There was an entire Tea Party movement when the original Tea Party was, was fighting an unelected king who was raising taxes. These guys were fighting an elected president who was cutting taxes, but there was just no knowledge of it. And I think even some Obama administration veterans look back at that and say, you know, that was, uh, even though we were doing the right thing policy-wise, that was kind of a bridge too far. Uh, you know, I, I quoted people saying it was stupid in my book. Yeah. I think that his rhetoric is fantastic on a word-per-word -word basis. I just wonder if his strategy, just how many people think we're on the wrong track and how that hasn't changed, even though the economy has changed so much, it's just a little mind-boggling. And I do chalk <laughs> it up to, you know, politics and 
media and silos. I chalk it up to all that. But I, I got to think that someone who's such a good communicator and wordsmith strategically that if that shop had taken a different tact, we wouldn't have, I don't know, 5% more people saying the country's on a right track. It's, you know, you make a great case. And certainly gay marriage is, uh, is probably the best example for your case, because that was one, particularly with African-Americans, where his bully pulpit really did seem to change some minds. Yeah. But then again, you know, <laughs> I'll give a couple counterexamples. I'd say probably the three best speeches he's made in his entire presidency were about gun control, um, right? After Tucson, after Newtown, and after Charleston. They were magnificent speeches. They were this, where has this Barack Obama been? Was, you know, we heard after every one of them. But you know, he didn't get any gun control through Congress. But I'll make a counter- really seem- That's a great point. But I'll make a counterpoint to your counterpoint, which is, yeah, politics aren't going to allow that uh, uh, political funding, filibuster, all that stuff. But he changed minds. The, the public opinion polls changed. Public opinion is totally on his side. But public opinion was pretty on his side uh, to begin with on on background checks. And again, uh, but I think we're one thing that we're we're agreeing on is that he's you know, he ran as this. You know, people said he was just a talker, right? He had never really had no record of achievement. I mean, just like a fancy talker. Well, he's turned out to be a doer, right? And he he, he had all that big talk about this postpartisan Washington and uh, and bringing the country together. And that he's been an utter failure, you know, whether you blame him or not. It just hasn't happened. But he also talked about all this stuff he wanted to do um, with uh, with education, energy, health care, Wall Street reform, the economy. And there he's been remarkably successful. And there's been virtually no kind of nexus between how much he's talked about stuff and how much he's gotten done. Everybody said, why isn't he making this into a political campaign? Why isn't he pushing for a jobs bill? And then in 2011, he came out with this American Jobs Act. And he went and did an old-style political campaign around the country, barnstorming. The crowds were yelling, pass the bill, pass the bill. And they didn't pass the bill, (laughs) right? right? Nothing happened. Michael Grunwald, the name of the article is The Nation He Built. He writes for Politico. Thank you. Oh, and let's mention his book, The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much, Mike. So we put out a call to, or even a tweet at Slate Gist, to a lot of our listeners, and we said, hey, anyone have a Squarespace website? Maybe you got the 10% offer that the Gist has offered via Squarespace. And we got people saying, yeah, I'm on Squarespace, and I look good, like Jason Buckholtz looks good. Jason Buckholtz has written a book called A Paper Sun. Where is it available? Where books are sold. He collects his reviews. There's a bio of Jason Buckholtz. And it's, it's, it's not overly splashy. It's quite functional, but it just looks nice. It's the sort of website that doesn't even look like it's a website. Squarespace helps you do that. They look professional. It doesn't matter what the skill is of the person setting up the website. You don't need to code. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools. And if you sign up now for a year, you get a free domain. So start your free trial today. Go to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please use our offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The beautiful person in question being Jason Buckholz. And now the spiel. 
A dark horse endorsed unless, of course, the source of he who gives the endorse is the amazing former governor. All right, let's play this game. Rick Perry is about to give an endorsement. He's dressed in a weird kind of barn jacket. He's looking not at the camera. It's pretty off-putting, but he's going to say a name. Let's try to guess who Rick Perry's going to endorse. Howdy, I'm Rick Perry. 2016 is a critical election, and I'm here to stress to you how important it is for conservatives to rally together and support a consistent conservative candidate who will take on Washington, who can defeat the Democrat nominee. All right, now at this point, let's go over the clues. Consistent conservative. He says that a couple times. That means not Trump, probably not Rubio, but he's also going to take on Washington. So I'm thinking it may be Jeb Bush, right? Perry's a governor. Jeb was a governor. A guy who could take on Washington. But, you know, he's a Bush. He's of Washington. I guess you could go Cruz because Cruz is a consistent conservative, but he, but he works in Washington. Let's see. Let's see what direction Rick Perry goes. That's why I support Ted Cruz for president. It was Cruz. It was Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz won the coveted Perry endorsement. Now, at this point, there aren't a lot of endorsements coming in from sitting politicians, at least on the Republican side. It tells you a lot about the bravery of politicians. Like Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa did a rally with Rubio, but it wasn't an official endorsement. She seems to like the guy, but doesn't want to go out there and give her endorsement. As if an endorsement's a thing. As if, like, you got to give blood or officially register somewhere. You just say, I endorse you. You don't even have to say it three times and prick your finger and drop some blood on the ground. It doesn't even require that. Like Chuck Grassley, he palled around with Trump, but it wasn't an official endorsement. Trump described as cannily pulling Grassley back on stage so they could take a picture. So maybe it'll look like an endorsement. Endorsements are not that important, though they do seem to correlate with winning candidates. But I think of them as lagging indicators because politicians, especially sitting politicians, those who perceive they have something to lose, they're so careful with their endorsements that you're not going to give it until you give it to the person you think is going to win. Now, Perry's a former governor. His campaign went nowhere. He doesn't have a lot to lose. So he says, yeah, I'll endorse Cruz. Just like this endorsement from yesterday, George Pataki, the former New York governor, endorsed Marco Rubio. Oh, not just endorsed, he told Fox News. I don't intend to just endorse. I'm going to do everything I can to help Senator Rubio sure win this election. That. Anything to help him. Among the former governor's tactics, he says he'll show up to other candidates' rallies an hour beforehand and hand out flyers. He'll go to public gatherings where there might be crowds assembled, like minor league hockey games, try to make a speech there. He'll buy lunch for everyone in a Veterans of Foreign Wars hall and shoot a commercial indicating that the people there like you. Those are all, all three of those things are actual things that Pataki did during this campaign. And it worked, you know. He showed up at a 2% in one poll. I'm sorry, that was a 1988 Poughkeepsie mayoral poll. Pataki, some facts on Pataki. As of October, his campaign had $13,500 in cash on hand, but $20,000 in debt. His campaign did not disclose how many Wyndham reward points he had. Come on, George, pay off the debt. I'd also like to highlight for a second why Pataki says he's backing Rubio. Senator Rubio has the leadership. He has the vision. He has the intelligence from Congress to understand what it takes to defend us against radical Islam. I'm proud to endorse Senator Rubio. 
you get experience, you get intelligence. Here's the thing, and this tells you a little bit about George Pataki's understanding of the mood of the electorate right now. Republicans, by a 48% to 34% margin, say they prefer a candidate with no political experience. So backing this guy because of his experience, it's the kiss of death or as it's known in upstate New York, the kiss of Pataki. But is Pataki a tried and true Republican? Well, he did tell this to the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, quote, if we nominated Attila the Hun, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. So Attila would get his support. Of course, when you heard what Pataki was talking about, leadership, understanding of the military, guy who could probably combat ISIS, Seems like Attila's a pretty decent candidate, right? Also, Attila did not attend Hillary Clinton's wedding. Attila, if he were alive, would definitely know what the nuclear triad was. So I I think that Pataki is pro-Attila, but he's still a Trump agnostic. Endorsements are such that we have a front runner on the Republican side who is creating his own gravity. He's creating his own gravy. He's basting in it. He's creating his own reality. In fact, reality TV show figures are lining up to endorse him. Sheriff Joe Arpaio endorsed Trump. I guess that lays the groundwork for the sheriff being invited on the next celebrity apprentice, I guess. On the Democratic side, remember, we're talking about kind of unbrave politicians. Hillary is crushing Bernie in the endorsements. It's pretty close in the polls, at least in Iowa and New Hampshire. Bernie's ahead in New Hampshire. In the endorsements, so the website 538 has this point system. You get one point for every member of Congress who endorses you, five points for a senator, 10 points for a governor. Want to hear the totals? Hillary Clinton, 458 points worth of endorsements. Bernie Sanders, two. Hillary Clinton's endorsements of 38 senators. Bill de Blasio's campaigning for her. Does it matter? It matters very little. Because the parties no longer hold sway. The candidates are rewarded for going rogue. And the voters are viewing the grandees of the party, especially the grand old party, less than grandly. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi played for the Presbyterian Blue Hose until she realized it was degrading hypothermic prostitutes. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, threw his support behind the Washburn University Ichabods until he succumbed to Ichabody shaming. Andy Bowers, who's the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, supported the Crimson Tide until it was brought to his attention that it wasn't named for the movie. It was named for the oceanic phenomenon that was named for the movie. Miles Dornboss ran the recording on this. Miles, what was your college nickname? The White Devils. (laughs) Glad you stuck with them. (laughs) The gist, we used to root for the Syracuse Orangemen, then discovered that nickname was only a reference to the discredited vitamin C megadose advocacy of Linus Pauling. Also, I'm more of a Orange doesn't really work on me. Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.